Our scripture reading is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 1 through 8. Give your attention and hearts and minds to the reading and hearing of God's word. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Father, we turn our gaze to you, the one who has turned his gaze to us, the one who has declared and displayed his glory in this world and revealed himself through this word. We've asked that your spirit would take the word that you have written and given and open our eyes to see and then to take and to hold on to the truth and the beauty that you display and that you grant us in Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. I'm going to guess that uh, there are people in here that are aware of and might be able to explain better than I can something referred to as AR. And some of you already know what that is. Augmented reality is a new technology that is, has come. <laughs> it has arrived. If you've seen any futuristic science fiction movies, you have begun to see what is potential and what is available for those behind the lens, behind the cameras, and in the production rooms to do that has a bearing on who, what we see and how we experience even a, a movie. It's a technology that superimposes a computer-generated image on a user's view of the real world, not a fictitious world, that's virtual reality that's created, but augmented reality is taking a computer-generated computer image and projecting that onto what we see in the real world so that what we end up with is a composite. And where one begins and the other ends is sometimes hard to determine, which is what is so remarkable about augmented reality. It takes a wearable head device or glasses or a smartphone or some kind of software, and you enter into a world that is familiar but different. <laughs> it overlays a digital content on top of the real world to enhance our experience of it, and in what others have said, presents a, quote, richer view of reality, end quote. A richer view of reality. 
Uh, it's, a, it's been used in all kinds of fields, virtually everything, from, from real estate to healthcare. It can be used by realtors to show you a home that you might purchase, and they put your furniture in that home to see what it looks like and how it works. It is, can be used by doctors with patients to display their autonomy, anatomy, sorry, <laughs> that too, anatomy, <laughs> uh, where doctors can use it to have guides during surgeries that require immense accuracy. The potential is limitless, and the technology takes us there. It's an investment for those of you with some extra cash laying around. By experts claim that by the year 2025, which is not very far away, that the, that the AR, VR, virtual reality, augmented reality industry will be worth over $25 billion and steadily rising. It's the future. It's the future that has arrived. I mean, it is here and we're seeing it in movies and other places. You could actually upload a picture of yourself, a photograph of your face, and try on different shades of lipstick, I'm told. Um, not that you would do that, but you could do that. The technology's there, and so here we go. The reality is we live in a culture, don't we, that has an ongoing quest to experience something that outdoes what we encounter in the real world. That outdoes it in so many different ways. And the reason that technology is now being used that way and we're buying it and we're using it is because we want to experience something that outdoes what we encounter in this world. That's not new. In 1980, Bruce Springsteen released what would become his, big, his first big hit. Some of you might be able to sing along. Everybody's got a hungry heart. Lay down your money and play your part. Everybody's got a hungry heart. That's one of the reasons that technology like this takes us and we go. There's some grand uses, by the way, of technology like that, perhaps. But the reason that we are always looking for something that outdoes our experience, that, that to a person, the things we experience in this world leave us like Bruce Springsteen has declared rightly, they leave us hungry. The things that we use to fill our hearts don't really satisfy, they really leave us hungrier. And so the quest continues until we come to the Beatitudes. In the text today, this last Beatitude that we consider today, what we find is that the satisfaction of the longing of every human heart is in our text. The satisfaction of the longing of every human heart is found right here in the words, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. We don't have as much time as it might take to unpack all of this that this could be. But for the time that we do have, I want to ask three questions of this text and of 
uh, our attention gathered. What does it mean to be pure in heart? What will it be like to see God? And how do those two come together? What does it mean to be pure in heart? This word heart, as you've noted, continues to show up, doesn't it? In Old and New Testaments, heart is a biblical category and one that we need to, to, to understand what the scriptures mean when, they're talking, when it's talking about our heart. And um, because scripture is always the best interpreter of scripture, I'm going to try to connect several of those scriptural dots today as we walk through this passage. The first one being this, heart, according to Peter, in 1 Peter 3, who is talking, writing to talking to women about true beauty, says it is not what you adorn. It's not that shade of lipstick that finally works. It's something inside. In fact, Peter's language is in 1 Peter 3, verse 4, it's the hidden person of the heart. That there is a person in that heart. <laughs> and it's that person that we are talking about. It is, Scripture will sometimes use the word heart to refer to that organ that pumps blood. But most of the time, it's referring to the hidden person of the heart. That's why you could say, and it's been said, that the heart is the seat of our emotions. It includes our emotions, not simply emotions, but it's the seat of our emotions, our intellect, and our will. That's how the Bible uses the word heart. It's talking about the you-you, the you that is you, the, the inner person of the heart. And that's what Jesus has in mind when he's talking about the pure in heart. But if the heart is the seat of all our emotions, will, and intellect, it is also, and here's the dilemma, it is also the seat of all our troubles. All our troubles. Here's, here's some scriptural dot connecting for you. As early as Genesis 6, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. This man that he created, and then the fall turns out something different. And the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the, heart, the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now that sounds, it might sound to you like overstating the case, hyperbole, until you stop and be honest. <laughs> Even, even the best of what we do, apart from God's work in us, has a backwardness to it and a selfishness to it. And so God could rightly look at this world and say that the intention of the thoughts of the heart of men that he created good because of the fall was only evil continually. That's why Jesus in Matthew 15 says, out of the heart... Come, evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. We can't simply fix the problem without dealing with the heart because the heart is the source. That's why you and I have difficulty fixing things about our own morality. 
we try this or that and, and, we, and we deal with what we can see and touch, but we can't reach the heart of the problem, which is the problem of the heart. Jeremiah put it like this, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And we find ourselves in that picture, don't we? That's the heart that Jesus has in mind. It's a heart that's a seed of all that we are. It's the seed of all of our troubles. And it is to be pure. It is to be pure. <laughs> so we're not talking about a heart that is halfway ready for the king to come or halfway ready to see God. That's the dilemma that we face. But there's a, there's a kind of heart that Jesus has in mind and he calls it pure. The words in heart, by the way, indicate the kind of purity that Jesus is talking about. Just as the words in spirit indicated the kind of poverty he meant in another beatitude. So the poor in spirit is to be spiritually poor as distinct from those whose poverty is material. So then, from what and from whom are the pure in heart to be distinguished? When he talks about the pure in heart, as opposed to distinguished from whom? The best answer, as we keep reading in Scripture, in the New Testament and Matthew in particular, the best answer to that question, the distinction is between those who are ceremonially Pure. They've been made pure according to all of those Old Testament rituals that we read about and scratch our heads. You remember, if you had certain disease, you were required to walk down the streets and yell, advertise, announce you were coming unclean. Unclean, that meant get ready, stand aside, here comes unclean. How would you like that for a name? Here comes unclean. But that's who we were required to be as ceremonially cleansed was what was required. And so with those diseases, there were certain rituals you had to do, certain time periods had to lapse, a waiting period for you to be able to then enter into the presence of God and to, for a priest to resume his duties. There was cleansing that he had to go through. There was a waiting period because... Only then would he be ceremonially pure and clean. And that's the distinction Jesus seems to have in mind when he says the pure in heart. There's two aspects to a pure heart. A pure heart, using the, understanding the word that Jesus used, it's the word from which we get our word, catharsis, sort of a purging, cleansing kind of event. Psychologists refer to cathartic events that set us back where we belong, kind of a reset. And, and in a similar way, what we're looking at and thinking about here is a heart that is cleansed and is without defilement. A heart that is undefiled it is without defilement it's why Jesus looked at those Pharisees and said you blind Pharisees first clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside may also be clean now I do have a cup here that is crystal clear and I'm 
I just did drink from this cup. <laughs> and I may do again before we finish here because it is relatively clean. But it, the outside were clean and the inside were not. In this cup, you could see it. But most of the time, we don't. And Jesus says, it's not clean unless they both are. Clean the inside of the cup before you come into my presence. A heart without defilement. And the dilemma is, we can't do that. A heart without defilement is one of the aspects of this pure and hard. The second one is without hypocrisy. You know, the hypocrite, that, that's, that, that also appears repeatedly in the Gospels. And as Jesus is interacting, he is dealing with the reality that many of us are fully aware of and we hear about that the church is full of hypocrites, right? Yes, we are. Yes, we are. <laughs> there are things that, that are true about us that don't show. <laughs> and most of the time we're glad that all of that doesn't show. But there is a brokenness and there is a a bentness to our lives that is a reality. Here's, here's how somebody defined a hypocrite. It's the person that lets their lights shine so that others cannot see what's behind it. <laughs> you let your light shine so that others won't see what's behind it. Cast a glare. <laughs> Cast enough of a glare so that you can't really see what's behind. John Stott uh, tends to lean toward this aspect in, in understanding what a pure heart is. He says it's the primary emphasis, it seems to be based on the context. The pure in heart are the single-minded. He's going to talk about a single eye in the Sermon on the Mount, and he, he believes that the pure in heart are the single-minded, those who are free from the tyranny of a divided self. And when I read those words this week and just now, I know what he's talking about. And I'm thinking virtually all of you do as well. The tyranny of a divided self. The psalmist says, Lord, unite my heart that I might fear your name. And the reason for that is he too knew the peril and the tyranny of a divided self. We are tempted to wear a different mask or play a different role according to each occasion. And here's an illustration. Let me see if I can show you what this is like. Think of someone whose opinion of you really matters. Someone whose opinion of you really, really matters. And how is it that you operate in his or her presence? Maybe it's somebody that you hope will give you a promotion. Maybe it's the coach who may admit you to the team. When, when someone's opinion really, really matters, we tend to step into that in ways that we hope convince him or her that we are almost the person that they see. <laughs> My brother-in-law uh, signs his, he's a dog lover. 
And he signs his emails with a little phrase. It says, Lord, help me be the kind of person my dog thinks that I am. But most of us, whether we have a dog or not, understand that, that there's a gap between who we are and who we're perceived to be. And if that gap was one that we settle into and we promote that gap, we just might be the hypocrites that Jesus is talking to. A pure heart is one without defilement. It's also one without hypocrisy. A whole heart, an integrated heart. Can I talk to your conscience for just a moment? And mine? How can your heart become pure? With hypocrisy and with defilement, how can your heart become pure? As I prepared for this and prayed my way to this point uh, this week, here's the best thing I ran across that I may be helpful to you as well. The only way to have a pure heart is to realize that you have an impure heart and mourn about it to such an extent that you do that which alone can lead to cleansing and purity. Let me read that again. The only way to have a pure heart is to realize you have an impure heart and mourn about it to such an extent that you do that which alone can lead to cleansing and purity. One of our Beatitudes is to mourn. Blessed are the poor in spirit who know their spiritual bankruptcy. Blessed those who are aware of that and mourn about it is the second Beatitude. For they shall be comforted. There is hope through the mourning and the reality of the impurity that is my heart and yours. The pure in heart are those who are mourning about the impurity of their hearts. What a contrast. What, a, what an almost anomaly. It sounds like a contradiction. The pure in heart are those who are mourning about the impurity of their hearts and who recognize that we're left to do... In, in one place with two responses. And the first one is to recognize that it is God alone who can do that work. That it is God alone who can reach the parts of my heart that I cannot. I've tried, and so have you, to fix things that are unfixable, it seems. But God has an ability, by definition, God has an ability to do what we cannot do. It is God alone, in that sense, who gives you a new heart. That's where this starts. A pure heart starts with a new heart. It's not a remade heart. It's not a greater reality heart, a more augmented heart. It is a new heart that is in process of being transformed by grace, by the word, by prayer, into a clean heart and a pure heart. It's God alone 
the pure in heart, according to Psalm 73, were those in Israel whose hearts were clean and undefiled, who recognized that God alone was their help and their reward, their refuge. God is my strength, is how the psalm ends, and God is my refuge. It is God's work in us. But I should be quick to add that while it is God alone, I do not remain passive. It is God's work. Paul tells us Philippians, right? To work out your salvation for it is God at work in you. It is not either or. It is God alone, but he has selected and chosen to use your participation in that process. It is his work. We are totally dependent on the spirit of God to do this work. But we step into it. And we are to do everything we can. And to know that it is not enough apart from the work of God in us. Which is why the writer of Hebrews says, strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. We strive for it. We take hold of the hope of the gospel. The striving that we embark upon includes embracing the gospel and taking Christ into our hearts who has taken us into his, united to him by faith, united to him. There is a fruitfulness and a change and a transformation that we cannot work up, that we cannot conjure, but it is his work in us. And the striving includes by faith, taking hold of this. So that's the pure heart. That's what he seems to mean by the pure in heart. But what will it be like to see God? What will it be like to see God? You know, we were told that in John 4 that, that God is a spirit. And by definition, his divine essence is invisible. He's revealed himself as one who is invisible. In Colossians 1, we read that, that Jesus comes to us as the visible expression of what? The invisible God. He is invisible. We read it in 1 Timothy. We sang it moments ago. God, immortal, invisible, God only wise. And 1 Timothy 6 says, refers to God whom no one has ever seen or can see. Because he is infinitely holy, Sinful humans would be destroyed if they were to behold his glory directly. That's what Moses learned, and that's what we learned from Moses. God, show me your glory. Can't do that. Here's my back. <laughs> I can't show you my glory. And yet that same God, as we continue reading, we read about believers who see God through the eyes of faith, in Hebrews 11, remember that chapter on faith? We read about Moses who endured as seeing him who is invisible. Moses endured as seeing him by seeing him who is invisible. It 
So there's a sense in which, with the eyes of faith at conversion, God says to the prophet Jeremiah that if you seek me with all your heart, you will find me. And there is a kind of vision right there. And whatever it is that Moses saw, it's in that Christian life, there is a kind of seeing God that, that we can expect and look for and lean into. But there will be another day. And you knew this. There is another day in a glorified state when our sanctification has grown up and we have been transformed and transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light and now, in, now inhabiting that in a glorified state, we read that God's children will see him as he is. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, now we see in a mirror dimly by faith. We see dimly. And what we see are the shadows of the reality of the glory and the majesty of God. We see it in part. But then we will see face to face. This grand story ends in Revelation 22 with these images. The throne of God and of the Lamb. And his servants shall worship him and they shall see his face. In a glorified state, here's there's still a question. Will we see God with the naked eye? Is this objective and visible or is this spiritual? That question has stumped biblical theologians and scholars and continues to. And the best answer to that seems to be ultimately it's a question that cannot be answered Our terms are so inadequate. Our minds are so small and finite that there is a danger in any attempt at the description of God and his glory, and yet this God has revealed himself. And what we do know, and maybe all that we do know about this, is that there is a glorious promise that in some way or another, the pure in heart shall see God Theologians have given this a label, the beatific vision. That moment where we pass into glory and we see Jesus face to face, that beatific vision, based on the same word from which we get our word beatitude. This beatific vision where we will one day see those who are in Christ will see him face to face. And the scriptures go on and on about what that may or may not be. And so have the Puritans. <laughs> Thomas Watson, who I've cited more than once here lately, English Puritan of the 17th century, talking about the, the excellencies of this vision. In typical Puritan fashion, he outlines eight and stops there. I'll give you two of his eight. What will it be like to see God? It'll be joyful. Acts chapter 2, citing Psalm 16, you will make me full of gladness with your presence or your countenance. In your presence, face to face, you will make me full of gladness. Peter writes, though you have not seen him, you love him. 
Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice now with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. And then the question comes, if the joy of faith be that such, be that much, what will the joy of sight be? If the joy that marks our life now, from time to time, when we are seeing things clearly, we are living in the moment of who God is and who we are, those moments may be fleeting and few, but there are times when you have seen that, I trust, and you know a joy that is inexpressible. If you don't know what that means, the Lord may be inviting you today into something that he presents before you. There is a reality to the truth and the promise that you will one day see God. If you are in Christ, it will be a joyous, full, exceedingly grand encounter. If you are in Christ. It will also be satisfying. That was one of the other eight from Thomas Watson. Psalm 17 says, As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness when I awake. I shall be satisfied with your likeness. A joy that is satisfying. He's got my attention. A joy that is satisfying. And Watson goes on to say, cast three worlds into the heart and they will not fill it. But the sight of God satisfies. So I got a question for us. What are we casting into our hearts that we hope will satisfy? That we hope will present to us and leave with us a joy that does not fade away. I have a list, and I bet you do too. These words from Jesus in this beatitude are not merely a reminder of who he is and who we are, they are an invitation to step into the reality that those who have a pure heart will see God and that is where you and I want to be. So how are these brought together? How are these brought together? I mean, think about this for a moment. He is invisible and we are blind. What are the odds? <laughs> what are the chances of this working out? He is invisible. We are blind, spiritually speaking. We cannot see the nose on our face, past the nose on our face, spiritually. But they are brought together. God is fully aware of the dilemma that he is invisible and we are blind as a result of the fall. And he moves into that misery. He moves into that dilemma with a gospel remedy. The invisible God becomes visibly manifested in Jesus Christ of Nazareth. I have a friend who used to work with high school students and he would say, 
Hey, if I had a picture of God in my back pocket, would you want to see it? That was his way of leading into a dialogue of God becoming man, becoming manifest, the visible of God becoming visible. That's why Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Because I'm from him. I am him. He entered this world in the form of a man. But not merely to reveal who he was but to redeem who we became with the fall. We are those with impure hearts, the brokenness of the world, the hypocrisy that marks my life and yours, the defilement that we know also well, the places of our heart that we can't reach to fix. We've tried, but we can't reach it. God entered the world in the person of Christ, the visible expression of the invisible God, to reveal himself, yes, but to redeem a fallen humanity, both. It's the visible God made manifest in the, in, the, in the flesh of Christ that broke that flesh on the cross for a broken humanity. It's his goodness and mercy to us to respond to the misery that we talked about last week that we know too well. That's how they come together. He who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God, then that includes a clean heart. He lived a life with clean hands and a pure heart, and he comes with those as gifts for you. His clean heart, his pure hands, pure heart, clean hands is a gift for you that you take upon by faith and are clothed in his righteousness. To those who come to him, who've mourned over their impure heart and by faith and through repentance have come to him, hearts now sprinkled clean. And the blinders of our eyes are removed and we begin to see with the eyes of faith the beauty of the one who came for us to rescue us. That's why Paul says and prays, church, that the eyes of your heart be enlightened, that you may know the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance of the saints? And that includes, yes, seeing God. That's your inheritance. It is yours by faith. Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. And here's where those two realities, the pure, the pure in heart and seeing God really come together it's in the words of the Apostle John, 1 John 3. Hear these words. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone, hear this, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. <laughs> Our faith is hoping in the one who is coming. And as we hope in him, we are purifying our hearts each step of the way. Now, there's still a puzzle. Quite a few, but here's one. Will we become so purified by the work of God in us that we can then see God? 
Or is it the vision of God that finally completely purifies us? And minds as bright and brilliant, way beyond mine, stumble there so that even R.C. Sproul, when asked that question, are we purified so that we can then see God? Or is it the vision of God which purifies us? R.C. says, I don't know. I don't know. But what we did know and do know and will know that Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount to show us our absolute need of the new birth and of the Spirit of God who is the one who gives us eyes to see what we cannot see until he does including the face of Christ. Friends, we can know this in this world. It does not wait for the world to come. We can see God in this world with the eyes of faith and left with the endurance that Moses knew, seeing what we cannot see. You know, it's not a superimposed computer-generated image to enhance your view of the world that you need. As grand as that technology may turn out to be. But there is a future. There is a future that is yours. It doesn't require a headset. It doesn't require software that needs to be upgraded every year. There is... There is not a richer view of reality that you need, but what we need and find in the gospel is a true view of true reality. That the God who made this world has entered this world and he is yours and you are his. And there's an encounter that takes place in this world that that extends into the world to come. That the pure in heart, those whose hearts have been made clean by the blood of Christ. Step into his presence with a welcome, with a face-to-face relationship that begins in this world and extends into the world to come. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Father, would you open our eyes to see that you have entered this world, that you have come with clean hands and a pure heart that we cannot provide. And by faith, we are granted those great and precious promises so that The scriptures can tell us that we have everything we need for life and godliness in this world, including a new heart, including a heart that has been cleansed and and purified while we are in this process of growing into our faith and growing in our sanctification. Lord, thank you that you have declared us yours because of a pure heart that is granted to us by faith in Christ. 
Lord, meet us in that as we press on to take hold of that for which you have taken hold of us. Through Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.